You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, your host, and with me today is Marilyn Keefe, Director of Reproductive Health Rights at National Partnership for Women and Families. She is a key leader in the implementation of legal and policy strategy for quality care and reproductive health in the United States. Welcome, Marilyn. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here today. Well, it's a very exciting time to talk about personal choice meeting public policy. And I thought maybe we should start out just talking about some of the things that happened on November 4th this year related to reproductive health policy. On November 4th was an excellent day for reproductive health. There were a number of state ballot initiatives um, related to reproductive health issues and some very good results coming out of those votes. In terms of support for reproductive health, obviously there was a pro-choice candidate versus an anti-choice candidate. Obviously, the pro-choice candidate won. So I think going into this next cycle, we're going to have a more pro-choice Congress. We've got some pro-choice ballot initiatives that were passed on November 4th. So I think we're looking at a very different political environment than the one that we've been functioning in for the last eight years. A breath of fresh air, if you will. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about the ballot initiatives that have been passed November 4th? Well, there were a number of ballot initiatives across the country that really threatened to violate women's privacy and health. I'm sure one that some listeners are familiar with was in Colorado, what was being referred to as the fetal personhood initiative. And that was defeated by an amazing three-to-one margin. It was it was a preposterous initiative that sought to amend the state's constitution to give fertilized eggs, if you can believe that, prior to implantation, the same rights and legal protections that apply once people are born. It threatened to ban widely accepted forms of contraception, including the IUD and the pill. It could have curtailed medical research involving embryos. It could have shuttered fertility clinics, criminalized a lot of different kinds of necessary medical care, including the right to abortion. So you had even the anti-choice governor of Colorado coming out against that initiative. It's remarkable to me that people in Colorado, whoever is responsible for trying to pass that law, would even think that that was going to be a reality. It's true. I mean, it, it was trounced in a big way on the one hand. On the other hand, we keep hearing that there's going to be a renewed effort to press for this same kind of initiative and that there will be efforts in 17 states, believe it or not, in the next election to try and enact the same kind of legislation. It's remarkable to me how many states actually do participate this. And even in South Dakota, I think one of the other ballot initiatives you probably want to talk about is they have now three times in the last 10 years tried to get a ban on abortion of all types. Right. And I think we were quite delighted when that initiative was defeated by a vote of 55 to 45 percent. It was a repeat of the 2006 ballot initiative to ban abortion. And I think the the real hope behind that had been to pass that ballot initiative and then have that be a challenge to Roe v. Wade. I mean, voters had rejected the same thing two years ago, but you know, backers of the ban had modified the language just so that it included very minimal exceptions for incest, rape, and life. And even the health exception was extremely limited. It was very narrowly drawn, saying that it's only in cases in which there is a substantial or irreversible risk of harm. So, you know, even even in constructing a health exception, it really basically banned abortion. Do you think in the optimism of Obama taking over, hopefully, a new pro-choice uh, venue in Washington, that we can foresee a time when the decision about abortion or things like it don't belong to state or federal government? Well, I mean, I think, although there's been a great deal of gains in this last election in terms of support for choice and for family planning and for reproductive rights across the board, there's still some way to go in terms of having a totally pro-choice Congress. So I think there will be a huge focus on prevention, on family planning, on getting rid of funding for 
dangerous, ineffective abstinence-only programs, funding for international family planning programs. I think you're going to see huge policy changes on the one hand. On the other hand, I don't think that there'll be huge numbers of bills that really address the abortion issues that we've seen in the last eight years. So speaking of that, what is the legacy of the Bush administration in its effort to regulate women's access to reproductive health care? Well, I think you've seen very little investment in some primary preventive health care programs. For example, the Title X Family Planning Program that gives money to about 4,400 clinics across the nation. But funding has been stagnant, notwithstanding the fact that there have been increases in health care costs across the board, both for contraceptives, for medical supplies, for health care personnel, you name it. But this is a program that very much has been allowed to languish. You haven't seen the expansions in family planning under the Medicaid program that makes sense to have. I mean, family planning is both basic health care for women, but it's also a cost-effective service. And so we're hoping in the next administration there'll be much more of a focus uh, both on preventive health services like that, but also services that save the government money. You know, it's interesting when you look at things like that. Many of the Medicare, Medicaid in general, private insurers do not often encourage preventive health, which is kind of counterintuitive because if you prevent a problem, it's going to be much cheaper than paying for the ramifications of it. And that common sense would seem clear to a second grader. I couldn't agree more. And I'm hoping what happens in this next administration is much more of a focus on evidence. And one thing we can look at are the cost savings associated with some of these preventive health care services. And so hopefully there'll be a much greater investment. Do you think there are any other legacy issues from the Bush administration regarding reproductive health? I think you've still got the ban on federal funding of most human embryonic stem cell research. That clearly is going to be lifted. You've heard the administration representatives talk over and over again about the fact that this is something that's likely to change at the very beginning of the next administration. I think there's been a lot of talk about lifting the global gag rule that has prevented U.S. dollars from going to non-governmental organizations that provide international family planning services to some of the poorest women around the world if those organizations provide abortion services or even give information about abortion. So I think that's something that the next administration will be taking care of right out of the box. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD, and we're talking to Marilyn Keefe, Director of the Reproductive Health Rights at National Partnership for Women and Family, about some of the exciting policy changes that may be happening in reproductive health in these next four years. So, Marilyn, do you think that there are any expected changes in the Supreme Court or federal court under Obama that may lend itself to an improvement in overall reproductive health for women? Well, I think supporters of reproductive rights breathed a sigh of relief last week. I should say that I work for a nonpartisan organization on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm very much an advocate for women's health and women's rights. And we recognize that the Supreme Court is an incredibly important body in the United States. We're likely to still retain that 5-4 split that we hear about so often with regard to reproductive rights. The people who are likely to retire first out of the Supreme Court are those who are supportive of a abortion rights. And so the balance is, is likely to stay the same for the next few years. The balance would obviously have changed very dramatically had those same people retired and John McCain been in a position to appoint the next members of the Supreme Court. I mean, he was very clearly going to appoint anti-choice members. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. He was very clear in that discussion. How about shifting gears a little bit? And as part of uh, reproductive health policy, access to birth control? and the health care that goes with that. Do you see, you foresee, it sounds like, more money going into those kind of programs and supporting things like Planned Parenthood and other programs like it? I certainly hope that there's a renewed investment in the programs that support 
basic preventive health care for women, including the Title X Family Planning Program and including Medicaid. I think it would be a nice change of pace for the U.S. government to be supporting comprehensive sex ed programs rather than the abstinence-only programs that have become a hallmark of this administration. So I think there's just a lot of progress that is relatively inexpensive that would do a whole lot to improve adolescents and women's health in the U.S. It's interesting to me because I think if we improved education about birth control and sexual education, we probably reduce the need for abortion, which we've already seen in the last decade as some of that education has already been done. That's right. And the public is very much behind those kind of investments. I mean, the public is very divided on the issue of abortion, but not very divided on the issue of birth control. I mean, 98, I'm sure you know this, but 98% of women in the course of their reproductive lives use birth control. It's something that people in the U.S. feel generally very positive about. And we often joke that Congress is the only place where birth control is sometimes controversial. (laughs) That's so true. Well, it's interesting, though, because I think there's a lot of misinformation. For example, I see women who think an IUD aborts a baby, which it really does not. It just makes it a hard place for the egg and sperm to meet. And you have to fight some of those misconceptions in education to be able to offer someone the kind of birth control that may be best for them. That's right. People are very confused sometimes about what constitutes a pregnancy and that actually the meeting of sperm and egg does not itself constitute a pregnancy. And so it would be a wonderful thing were there to be better education about how contraception works, how emergency contraception works, because I think it's a little counterintuitive. Emergency contraception can be taken within 72 hours after unprotected sex, but that also prevents a pregnancy. You don't have a pregnancy until there's implantation. That's the medical definition of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Well, that actually brings up a good point, which is there was an enormous amount of resistance to emergency contraception becoming an over-the-counter availability. Yes. I mean, I think that emergency contraception is incredibly important for American women. I'm hoping that the FDA takes another look. Right now, there is a prescription required for under 18-year-olds to have access to emergency contraception and is behind-the-counter access to individuals 18 and over. I think there was a lot of concern that that decision was based on politics rather than looking at the medical evidence. So we're hopeful that in this next administration, the FDA will go back, take a look at how the decisions were made, and decide that emergency contraception should be just a straight-out, over-the-counter product and available to women of all ages. Thank you, Marilyn Keefe, Director of the Reproductive Health Rights at National Partnership for Women and Families. We've been discussing the challenges for reproductive health and public policy. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. You've been listening to the Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-639-6157. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. So, Rachel, Mm -hmm. now that you're past menopause and we've determined you have osteoporosis, I'd like to start you on prescription-only Avista, raloxifene hydrochloride tablets. Why Avista? Well, because it's the only medicine that reduces the risk of osteoporotic fractures and invasive breast cancer in women like you. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I really at risk for invasive breast cancer? Based on my risk assessment, you may be. Some risk factors for breast cancer include advancing age, family history, and personal history. So even though no one in my family has ever had breast cancer, I'm still at risk for other reasons, including my advancing age? Exactly. 
And I think the benefits outweigh the potential risks for you. It's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. Individual results may vary, of course, but that's exciting news. Exciting? I'll have to take your word on that, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Avista increases the risk of blood clots and should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly Sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA. This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.sermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.